0: I will take absolute credit for him being in the Bay Area. I mean, somebody asked me, do you know anybody, they were looking for a pastor to do more teaching, senior pastor was a little bit older at a church up here. And so he asked me and I prayed about it and Ryan was like the first guy that came to mind. And so I mentioned it to Ryan and then I mentioned it to the senior pastor, put them in touch together. And so while God receives all of the glory, I will take all of the credit. <laughs> it is awesome to see what God has done uh, in and through Resonate Church. Um, first and foremost, let me just say that, you know, scripture says, I think sometimes we talk about like we do our good deeds so our father in heaven will be glorified. Like the people will see that and they will glorify our father in heaven. That's certainly true. but. I think of even more significance and importance are the passages that say, they will know you are my disciples by the love you have for one another. And uh, the love oozes here at Resonate Um, from the relationships that the staff have with one another to just being here earlier this morning and seeing the volunteers and those who serve all being together. And then just the interactions, Um, you guys love one another well, And it spills over into a love that I get to feel as, uh, I'd say a guest, but I'm just going to call it a family member from out of town. Um, And so I'm just so grateful. Uh, And then obviously on a personal level, Ryan said uh, the relationship we've had. There is my wife as far as like the reason I'm still in ministry for, uh, it'll actually be 25 years that I've been at the church that I'm at in September. And the reason is, Apart from God's grace and mercy, my wife, and then next to my wife are my brothers who are also pastors who have faithfully encouraged me over the years, and that's what Ryan has done. Um, he's been like wind in the sails of a lot of us pastors, and so uh, I know you're grateful for him because I just see the reception, but I thought I would take the time to tell you again um, what an awesome thing you have going here at Resonate, and I'm uh, grateful to be here with you. With that, um, now let me turn and talk about my stellar academic credentials. (laughs) I was not a reader growing up, and it was a struggle to read in high school English. But I remember the first book that I read that sort of, huh, that's kind of cool, was a book called Lord of the Flies. Raise your hand if you're Hayward, raise your hand so everybody can see. If you're at home online, like acknowledge, I want to know how many people have read Lord of the Flies. Okay, so I read Lord of the Flies as a freshman in high school. I was also taking biology. I didn't tell any of the other services this, but I was also taking biology as a freshman in high school, and we were dissecting pigs. (laughs) So guess what my English teacher found on her desk? (laughs) I told you I wasn't a stellar student, but I did have a good sense of humor. Anyway, we read Lord of the Flies And what just dawned on me as I'm reading this book is here are these boys, young boys that are, you know, younger than freshmen in high school, more middle school years. And you just see how these guys initially are so scared to be on this island all by themselves in the Pacific during World War II and wondering, like, are they going to survive to putting a plan together to kind of survive, and they only had three rules, and one of the rules was that the fire would keep going so that if anybody saw them, they would be able to come rescue them, to all of a sudden everything begins to crumble, and it's because of rivalry. Instead of working together, they begin to see one another as rivals, and so you have these kind of two leaders that begin to develop these factions, and they begin to eventually get to the point where they kill one another. And Jack and Ralph are kind of the two leaders of the two groups, and there's all kinds of bad stuff that happens, and the novel ends, if you're familiar, with a British naval officer from the Royal Navy that comes, and he can't believe what he's seeing, what these kids have devolved into. And he looks at them, and then there's a famous last line in the novel where this naval officer like, how could you come to this? And then he looks up, and the way the novel says, he looks out at his battleship. Meaning it wasn't just the kids who have devolved into this, but the adults are living it out too. And then as a senior in high school, I think it was my senior year, it might have been my junior year. It was the first time like a novel, like this really got me into reading. And it was a novel called A Separate Piece. Has anybody read A Separate piece? It's usually fewer people who have read A Separate piece by Jonathan Knowles. But this book, it was just life-changing for a couple reasons, or not life-changing, I mean, it's just a book, but it was like, it, it really opened some horizons for me, and the reason is because these two characters, it was at a New England high school during World War II, So everybody, all these students at this boarding school, this male-only boarding school during World War II in New England, they all knew that they were going to have to go to the war after. So the high school years were, you know, filled with a lot of, huh, this is what's next. And the relationships between these high school boys was just tight. It was good. And it it focuses on two main characters, Gene and Phineas. Phineas is the best athlete in the school's history. Like everything comes easy to Phineas. People love Phineas. People like him. The teachers sort of let him get away with more because he's just so likable. And all the other students just love Phineas. He's just the good guy that everything good happens to. But Phineas's best friend is Gene. And the only thing that Gene is better at than Phineas is the book smarts and the academics. And Phineas actually struggles a little bit. And they develop this relationship and Phineas just loves being around Gene. Like that's his, that's his boy. And they want to be together and Gene begins to question why does Phineas want to be around him? And the reason he questions it and this is what like hit me in my heart even at that age was Gene saw Phineas, his best friend as a rival. Like he was jealous of him and he was envious of the goodwill that came to Phineas. So much so that as the story progresses, they go up on this limb and this limb becomes a part of the story. It's a tree that overhangs a creek and the boys would go up there and they would jump off the limb down into the creek. And again, Phineas is the best athlete. Phineas would do flips off the limb into the creek. And they go up and Phineas walks out to the edge of the limb and Jean is next up and Jean's on the, closer to the trunk on this tree limb. And all of a sudden, the tree limb shakes and Phineas falls off, hits the bank and breaks his leg. Best athlete in school's history, falls off, does something clumsy. And nobody believes that Phineas just fell. Like something doesn't smell right here. And so all the students hold a trial because they think Gene sabotaged Phineas. And Phineas doesn't want to believe it because Phineas's best friend is Gene, like Phineas just can't wrap his head around that because he's so altruistic. He just loves everybody. He loves his best friend, Gene, and he just can't imagine that Gene would do that on purpose. But it goes to trial among the students. And at this trial, it comes out that Gene, whether subconscious or consciously, shook the branch and knocked Phineas off. And when that realization washes over the room, Phineas can't believe it. And he gets up and on, you know, a hobbled leg, he runs out of the room, hits the staircase, stumbles down the stairs and re-breaks his leg. The bone marrow gets from his leg into his heart and he literally dies of a broken heart. Sorry to ruin this story for you. <laughs> but it was that, that it literally died. He bro- died, you know, metaphorically of a broken heart and literally of a broken heart and like kind of like, wow, literature's awesome. But it was, I know myself and I've had those same feelings of envy towards people who good things happen to. Like it's that rivalry. I even felt this for my own brother when I was a kid, because then you start to look back on your life and you're thinking, man, like I've had this for a long time. My brother's two years younger than me. He's bigger than me, and he always had stronger, like lower half, like legs than me. And we were at my cousin's house. I, I think we we're about nine and seven, maybe a little older, but not much. And my cousin lived in a neighborhood where we could race the bike around the clock, around the block, and we had a stopwatch. And so we would time to see you finish first. So my cousin goes first and then I went and I beat my cousin and then my brother's gonna go and I've got the clock and my brother's come, I can see him coming down the street and he's gonna beat my time, my little brother. And so he rolls up and I let the clock keep running. Because I was not going to let my brother win. Why wasn't I going to let him win? Because there was that competitiveness, that rivalry with my brother. And that's a, you know, that's a cheap example. Like, it doesn't cost very much. But, like, we have rivalries in our lives and in our hearts. And sometimes the cost is dear. Why are we like that? Why do we struggle with rivalry? Why do we struggle with that envy? Why do we struggle with that comparison? because it's our default position as human beings. Open your Bibles to Genesis four and let's see why it's our default position as human beings. Genesis chapter four, you wanna stand for the reading of God's word. We'll pick it up in chapter four, verse one. Now, Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain saying, "'I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord.' And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep and Cain, a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is is Abel, your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper, Heavenly Father, we come before you today knowing that deep down in our hearts we are susceptible to the same sin as Cain, or that we compare ourselves to others, we see others as rivals, people to compete with, and yet we know that your desire for Cain and your desire for us is that we would be our brother's keeper, not our brother's rival. As we look at these stories in Genesis today, I pray that you would help us to see how we might overcome this cycle of rivalry. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. You might be seated. It's a profound story. It's the first sort of full bloom of sin after the seeds have planted in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. Their sins are passed down to their kids, kids grow up. The first sin recorded in scripture outside the garden is fratricide. A brother kills a brother. And if you read the text, there's not much to read into the details with regard to the offering from the fruit of the ground versus the animal livestock. Like none of that is preeminent in the text. What the text wants us to focus on is simply this. Cain's relationship with God was just that Abel's relationship with God was just that. It was the minute Cain started looking at Abel and thinking God grades on a curve. And if he could eliminate the competition, then this relationship would be okay. And it wasn't going to be. It was the comparison. It was the seeing Abel as somebody to be competed against as a rival that then he kills his brother. And then what we see happen over and over again through the book of Genesis, every sibling relationship is characterized by rivalry because it's our default position once sin enters the world. Look at the next story of siblings is Isaac and Ishmael. If you want to flip ahead a few chapters in Genesis to chapter 21, Abraham has two kids, Isaac and Ishmael. Ishmael's the older brother. Ishmael should be looking out for Isaac. Isaac's much younger. Isaac comes of age. He's weaned and they have a celebration and they have a party and he should be rooting for his brother and cheering for his brother. And instead we see in chapter 21, verse eight, and the child Isaac grew and was weaned and Abraham made a great feast on, the day, on that day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, Ishmael, whom she had born to Abraham laughing. And that's a play on the words in Hebrew, Isaacing, he was looking on Isaac with resentment, with rivalry. He wanted to be where Isaac was, getting what Isaac was getting. And a rivalry continues. And then we see Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau. And if you're familiar with that story, you know that this relationship is characterized by rivalry. Jacob and Esau are brothers. Esau is out hunting. Esau comes back and he's hungry. Jacob is cooking. Now, if you're your brother's keeper, you're cooking, you have extra, your brother comes in and he's really hungry, what do you do? You give him food. But that's not what he does. He says, oh, you're hungry. Okay, well, give me your birthright. Like, talk about taking advantage of a brother in a situation. Chapter 25, verse 29. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die of what use is a birthright to me. Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew. Just think about that. His birthright for the cost of bread and lentil stew. I mean, some good tortilla soup, maybe, but not lentil stew. And he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Story after story, brothers don't keep one another. They compete with one another. They're rivals. And then Jacob's kids take it to a whole nother level. Genesis chapter 37, Jacob has 12 sons, become the 12 tribes of Israel. And we pick up the story with, Ten older brothers, Joseph's number 11, he's about 17 at this time, and well, just listen to the rivalry. Chapter 37, verse 1, Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pastoring the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives, and Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age and he made him a robe of many colors. Parents, don't follow Jacob for parenting advice. It's one thing to have a favorite. It's another thing to tell the rest of the kids who your favorite is. It's another thing to give them something to wear daily that shows everybody else that he's your favorite. This is what Jacob does. He kind of stokes the rivalry. his brothers said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Again, look back at verse four, they hated him. And then verse five, they hated him even more. And then verse eight, they hated him even more. The rivalry is getting ugly. His brothers hated even more, even more. So Joseph goes out to the fields one day because his father says, go check on your brothers. And Joseph goes out to the field, checks on his brothers. The 10 older brothers are out there and the 10 older brothers look and they see Joseph coming and they say, here comes that dreamer. In other words, here comes that rival. Let's kill him. Let's get rid of him once and for all. Like that's bad. But then one of the brothers steps up and says, we probably shouldn't kill him. I mean, he's our brother after all. Let's just sell him into slavery. So much more compassionate. So they decide to throw him in a pit. Band of Ishmaelites come. They sell their brother Joseph into slavery. Take that coat of many colors, smell animals' blood on it, take it back to their dad and say, Joseph has been killed by a wild animal. Their knowledge, Joseph is gone. Joseph's been sold into slavery. Joseph goes to a place bought by a man named Potiphar, Potiphar's bigwig. Potiphar notices that Joseph does his work well, and Joseph begins to rise through the ranks, and Joseph eventually becomes in charge of everything at Potiphar's house. Potiphar's not the only one to notice Joseph. Potiphar's wife also notices Joseph. She has a crush on this pool boy. So she says, Hey, Joseph, the words of Marvin Gaye, let's get it on. And Joseph's like, I can't do that to my boss. Like he's put me in charge of everything. He's not withhold anything from me except for you. Like we can't do that. And he leaves. And she keeps flirting and she keeps wanting to get together with Joseph. And Joseph says, I can't do that. And then one day Joseph goes into the house and nobody else is in the house except for Joseph and Potiphar's wife. And she propositions him. And Joseph does the only thing he can do. He runs and she grabs his cloak. He leaves the house. Joseph does everything right. And when Potiphar gets home, his wife says, Joseph tried to rape me today. Here's his cloak to prove it. Potiphar is beside himself. And so he throws Joseph, has Joseph thrown into prison. Joseph goes to prison and he's in prison. But guess what? Joseph continues to thrive even in prison. Like things go well for him. People notice that he's doing well, that things go well with Joseph. And so he kind of rises up the ranks in the prison. And then Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, has two of his people thrown into prison, a baker and a cupbearer. The baker and the cupbearer have these dreams, they're kind of funky dreams. And they start talking about the dreams and Joseph hears it. And Joseph is like, wait, tell me about that dream again. And so the cupbearer tells him about the dream, and Joseph hears it, and he's like, oh, oh, well, this is, this is actually good news. In three days, you're going to be restored to your position as cupbearer, and you're going to be serving Pharaoh again. And he's like, that's a good dream. The baker hears him say that, and he's like, hey, I had a dream too. Let me tell you about mine. And he tells him about this loaf of bread and these birds eating the loaf of bread, and Joseph's like, mm, not quite as good. Like, you're going to be hanged in three days and the birds are going to be eating the flesh off your scalp. Obviously, the baker's not real happy with that interpretation. (laughs) But sure enough, three days go by. They're both released. The cupbearer is restored, and the baker is hanged. On their way out, Joseph said to him, don't forget me. Don't forget the kindness that I did to you. Don't forget me, please. And guess what they do? They forget him. Another couple years go by, Joseph's been in prison. Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, has a dream. Pharaoh has this dream. It's a really weird dream about these fat, like massive cows, plump, healthy, fat cows come out of the Nile River. And right behind them, there's seven emaciated, skinny cows that come out and the skinny cows devour the fat cows. And he has another dream with these seven stalks of grain that are just the healthiest, biggest, largest stalks of grain you've ever seen. And seven like wind dried, emaciated stalks that come out and they eat all the fat stalks. And Pharaoh's like perplexed by this. What is this dream all about? Calls all the magicians of Egypt together says, here's my dream and explains it to him. And nobody has a word for him. And the cupbearer says, oh, you know what? I mean, I don't like to talk about it, Pharaoh, because you know we were on the outs at the time. But when you sent me to prison, I was there with this guy named Joseph, a Hebrew, and he actually told us what our dreams meant, and it all like came, came to be. And so he goes, well, send him over. Joseph gets all cleaned up. Joseph stands before Pharaoh. Pharaoh tells him the dream about the fat cows, the skinny cows, the fat stocks, and the skinny stocks, and says, what does it mean? And Joseph says, here's what it means. The Lord is telling you the future. He's preparing you for the future. And those fat cows and those fat stocks are seven years of plenty. Like you're gonna have so much, you're not even gonna know what to do with it, but you need to do something with it. You need to store it away because the seven emaciated cows and the seven emaciated stocks, those are years of famine that are gonna follow. And if you don't have stuff tucked away, you're gonna be in a world of hurt. So what you need to do, Pharaoh, is put somebody wise in a position of influence to prepare during the seven years of plenty for the seven years of famine. And Pharaoh says, hmm, who do we know that's wise? Joseph. Joseph, you're clearly a wise man. Clearly God has blessed you. And he gives him his signet ring. And he says, all of Egypt is yours. You're in charge of everything. He tells the people, whatever Joseph says to do, do it. Only I'm over you, Joseph, you're over everybody else. And so Joseph takes the position. And sure enough, during the seven years of plenty, Joseph builds storehouses, collects all the excess, buys excess grain, puts it all away so that when the years of famine start, Egypt is really well positioned. And you get into the second year of the famine and there's this land of Canaan, modern day Israel, north of Egypt, that begins to experience the famine. This guy's family named Jacob, He's got a big family, a lot of sons, they've got a lot of family. Jacob says to his sons, I hear there's food in Egypt, go down to Egypt and get some food. And so those 10 older brothers go down to Egypt to get some food. And as soon as they roll up, Joseph recognizes his brothers, but his brothers don't recognize him because it's been like 13 years, been a long time. We change between 17 and 30, don't we? So they didn't recognize Joseph and Joseph sees him. And at this moment, Joseph could go all another literature reference, count of Monte Cristo on him. Like he could get vengeful in a hurry, right? But he doesn't, he kinda wanna feel out the situation a little bit and so he tests his brothers. And he says, hey, who are you guys? And they're like, well, we're just a family from Canaan coming to get food. And he's like, no, you're not, you're spies you've heard that we've got a lot here in Egypt and you've come to spy out our land so that you can come back and take it. And they're like, no, 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 we promise. We, we did not do that. We're just a family. Like there's, there's actually 12 kids, 12 sons, and one of them has died. And the youngest one, like the one that our father had in his old age, like he loves him more than anything. He, like he's back at home. And so the 10 of us came and we have to take it back. And Joseph says, oh really? Well, prove it. You go home and you bring your youngest brother back and I'll keep one of your brothers here while you do it. And they're like beside themselves, like, no, God, dad's going to kill us if we do this. Like, we can't do that. He says, well, you got no choice. So they give him Simeon, the second born. Simeon stays with Joseph in Egypt. They go back home and they tell Jacob, their dad, like this guy accused us of being spies. All we did was tell him that we're like from Canaan and we described our family. And he said, we can't come back unless we bring the youngest brother, unless we bring Benjamin. And Jacob's like, well, you're not taking Benjamin. You already, I've already lost Joseph. I can't stand to lose Jacob or to lose Benjamin. You can't take him back. And so they go and the famine continues and they're not able to provide. And Jacob finally has to relent. And he has to tell his sons, like, you got to go get more food. And they're like, we can't get more food. Like if we get more food, we have to take Benjamin with us. Otherwise he's going to accuse us of being spies. And he's going to kill us. We can't do it. And so Jacob finally relents because Judah steps up and Judah says, dad, I will take personal responsibility for Benjamin. I will own this. I will protect him, his life for my life. And so Jacob relents and he lets them go to Egypt and they go to Egypt. And as they roll into Egypt, they're sent directly to Joseph's house and they come to Joseph's house and the guys are a little bit nervous now. They're like, we're in trouble. Like, why would he send us straight to her house? And then he goes to the house and at the house, he has them set around a banquet table and they're seated according to their ages. So like Reuben is here and then Simeon and then Levi and then Judah and it goes all around the table and Benjamin, the youngest, it's in birth order and they're like stunned by this. And everybody gets these generous portions except Benjamin gets five times what everybody else gets. And they're like, what is going on? And so then Joseph tells them like, you know, hey, you're free to go. Tells them to load up their bags, loads up their bags, gives them their money back. And in the sack of Benjamin, he puts in his silver cup, Joseph's silver cup. He sends them out. And they go and they just barely get outside the city. And Joseph sends his servants and says, my silver cup's missing, go find it. And they stop the brothers. And they're like, did you guys steal from Joseph? They're like, no, we didn't steal from Joseph. Here, check our bags. And so they get the bags down and all their money and all the grain is there. And then they get to Benjamin, the youngest son, his bag. And there's the silver chalice. And you can just imagine the blood draining from all the brothers. Like, oh, like this is bad. And they go back and Joseph plays, you know, tough guy. He's like, what are you guys doing? Like, why would you steal? Why would you repay evil for good? Why would you do this? And they're like, we don't know what happened. We didn't do it. And at that moment, Judah steps up. Because Joseph said, everybody else can go, but Benjamin's got to stay. And Judah steps up and he says, you can't do that. It will crush my dad. I have made a pledge, my life for his life you can't do that. Take me and let him go back. And Joseph sees that there's a change in his brothers. And Joseph asks everybody to leave and he's overwhelmed with emotion. And Joseph weeps because he sees that his brothers have changed. And Joseph reveals to his brothers like, hey, I'm your brother. I'm Joseph. Go back to Canaan, go get dad, go get your wives, go get your kids and bring everybody to Egypt. This thing's gonna go on for five more years and I will take care of you. And so the brothers are like, really? Kind of feel like Joseph might come after us? Just like, no, just go, get it, bring dad down. And this is what Joseph says. And don't quarrel on the way. Don't fight about it. And so they go and they get Jacob and they bring Jacob and all of his family back to Egypt. Pharaoh welcomes them, gives them the best land in Egypt, the land of Goshen, lets them set down roots. It's like awesome. And Jacob is able to bless his grandsons, Joseph kid, and then Jacob's getting ready to die and then he dies. And at that point, the brothers are scared. Like they think the only reason Joseph has been kind to them is for their dad's sake. And now that dad is dead, they're afraid that Joseph is gonna take it out on them. Like that rivalry is, that's been simmering below the surface is going to rise up. And so they go question Jacob or Joseph. And this is the famous passage at the end of Genesis chapter 50, where Joseph tells his brothers, you aren't my rivals, I'm your keeper. I will take care of you. Chapter 50, verse 19. But Joseph said to them, do not fear. For am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Joseph breaks the cycle of rivalry because he understands and embraces the sovereignty of God. This wasn't your doing, bros. This was God's doing. Joseph recognized that nothing can get into his life and his way of God's plans for his life unless it first gets through the sovereignty of God. And as he embraced the sovereignty of God, the cycle of rivalry was broken. He said as much earlier to his brothers, but they just, I don't think they believed it. If you go back to chapter 45, when he first reveals himself to his brothers, you can see like they're worried he's going to kill them right then. But this is what he says in chapter 45, verse 40, and just listen to God's sovereignty. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near and he said, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in in the land these two years and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. It was God's sovereignty. And the moment Joseph realizes that God had sovereignly orchestrated everything, there's no more competition. There's no more rivalry. He's free to be his brother's keepers. When we embrace the sovereignty of God, we break the cycle of rivalry. And it took a minute for Joseph to get it. But we get clues all along the way that God, not only do we go through these things, but God sustains us along the way. We see God working at the lowest moments in Joseph's life. The author of Genesis points out that God was in control. If you want to turn back to chapter 39, this is the low point where he's first sold into slavery. And listen to what it says. Chapter 39, verse 2. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. Right at that moment, that low point, God was with Joseph. And then Joseph is thrown into prison. And at that moment, the author tells us in chapter 39, verse 21, But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. God was with Joseph sovereignly working things all along the way. And in hindsight, Joseph was able to look back and to see. So when that moment came, when he could have stuck it to his rivals, he doesn't. Because he embraced the sovereignty of God and he breaks the cycle of rivalry. In my doctoral program, my mentor, the reason I wanted to study under him was because of a quote he had written in something actually relating to the Psalms. And what he says is, at first sight, the belief that God is behind the trouble that comes to us is a frightening doctrine. What kind of God is this whose purpose includes so much distress? But the alternative, A God whose purpose is continually being frustrated by evil is even more frightening. Better a God whose mystery we cannot understand, but who has given us grounds for trusting when we cannot understand, than one whose adequacy we cannot rely on or whose interest we cannot be sure of. God doesn't always explain to us why things are going the way they are. But what God has proven to us is that he is sovereignly working things out. And for anything to happen to us, it has to go through the grid of God's sovereignty. And God has proven his love for us. God has shown us through the death, burial, and resurrection of his son that he will not withhold anything from us. And that nothing can separate us from the love of God. We have a God who's triune and the second member of that triune God, Jesus, the son, stepped up and said, I will be my brother's keeper. So much so that he was willing to go at a cross. And on that cross, we see the love of God displayed. We see that God will not stop at anything to make sure that his love works on our behalf. When we embrace that sort of sovereignty, we can break the cycle of rivalry and love and keep and help those people that God brings into our life. Let's pray. Lord, we give you thanks this morning. We thank you for your sovereignty. It's not always easy, Lord, but we know that ultimately a sovereign God is the only God. And Lord, we thank you for utilizing that sovereignty to love us. Lord, that you have loved us in ways that are unfathomable, that are beyond comprehension. But what we know is what we've seen on the cross and what we've seen as you raised Jesus from the dead, Lord, that you have raised us with him. And because of that, Lord, we can trust your sovereignty. We can embrace it. And when we embrace that, Lord, we can break the cycle of rivalry that comes so naturally to each and every one of us. We pray that you would help us to do that by the power of your spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray.